everyone. Welcome to the All About Animal show. My name is Akita Dewan, and today we have here with us Alana Reynolds. She is a current joint degree student at Stanford Law School in the School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences, and is pursuing environmental research and law. She has made incredible contributions to the environmental field, from conducting award-winning research on mitigating human-wildlife conflict to fighting a court case against harmful pesticide use. We're so excited to have you here. Thank you so much for joining today, Alana. How are you today? Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm doing great and honored to be on, on your show. Great, yeah, and I'm just really interested to know, can you just tell us about your background and what inspired you to get into this field? Yeah, so my background currently, like, like you mentioned, I'm at Stanford. Um, my background was originally purely in the sciences. So as an undergrad, I focused on majoring in ecological and evolutionary biology, they called it. So just a you know fancy word for um, environmental research. And I minored in uh, climate and energy. And after working in the sciences for a little while, I started to get interested in issues of um, policy and law. Uh, I guess it kind of ties back into how I got into research in the first place. I, as a little kid, was very passionate about environmental issues. I don't really know why. <laughs> I didn't grow up in a particularly um, like environmentally gorgeous place. I'm just kind of from a small town in Illinois, but I was really passionate about environmental issues and wanted to work in a field that sort of was focused on problem solving in that space and um, trying to help you know, things get better when it came to environmental issues. And so that took me to science. And then as I was in science, I realized um, that perhaps provision of information didn't necessarily always have the impact that I wanted it to, just pure academic provision of information. So I transitioned to uh, environmental law, public interest litigation with the idea of sort of mm, putting the science into action, <laughs> putting the science before people that would be able to rule on it, make new laws, sort of change the way we were operating. And that was my, my vision of uh, law and advocacy. So that's how I wound up where I am now um, at Stanford doing, again, environmental law. And because it felt like understanding of the science was important to good environmental law, um, I kept my uh, sort of scientific background. And that's why I'm in their joint program, getting my master's at the School of Earth so that I can sort of keep my literacy in the science underlying these issues, even as I sort of pivot more to a um, litigation and advocacy sort of uh, standpoint for environmental problem solving, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's very cool like how your, how your journey progressed from, you know, theory to application. And especially, you know, you're working in local communities, but also higher um, orders of law since, you know, like the science is important in the end for mm -hmm. implementation. So that's uh, really great. And one of the applications you've done is that you've carried out research on the mitigation of elephant crop rating in local farming communities. And, uh, you know, you conducted weekly meetings with the local members to communicate the results, plan experiments, so um, can you just talk about just um, what, what was the work? Uh, you did it at the, uh, the Gurungosa National Park with elephants. Just how did you identify this as a research area, firstly? 
Yeah, so this was uh, during um, before I before I transitioned to the law, but when I was starting to think about the law, I realize now looking back, um, the way it got identified, it was actually through the help of other scientists at uh, my university. They, uh, there was a professor who I got along with really well, loved his classes. He was in the ecology department. And when it came time to do uh, independent research, um, I sort of asked him what issues their lab was working on. And um, they described to me a number of the things, uh, sort of issues that had come up in the course of their research. And back then I started to recognize even then that I was starting to lean towards um, still scientific issues, but scientific issues that kind of resulted in really immediate practical change. And so when he talked about you know, there's some research that needs to be done, but the purpose of this research is to help end or mitigate, um, fancy word for, you know, make better, an actual ongoing problem between local farmers and protected animals that's leading to a lot of suffering on both sides. You know, this this research would go right into sort of making that better. Mm-hmm. That was really attractive to me because I didn't quite realize it at the time, you know, you know, you don't always realize where you're headed, but even then I was like, I, I, science is very motivating, but I, I have this desire for it to be sort of more of a problem solving, direct problem solving type thing, which eventually led me to the law after, after undergrad. But I think that's what drew me to it was, you know, it's almost like there's a plaintiff and a defendant there, not quite, but there are two sides that are arguing and some sort of resolution needs to happen. And um, I just found the sort of good that could come from solving that problem really motivating. And so that was kind of how I settled on that topic. And it was accessible for someone of my skill level. Cause of course, at the time I was, I was a student, I was learning more, um, but the things that they needed research to really make progress were relatively like surprisingly accessible. What it, what it really came down to was, you know, we have these protected species. We have these farmers who live nearby those protected species. They don't understand that they're in a park. (laughs) So they wander, they, they leave. And when they leave, they see food that they see as a good source of nutrition. They don't really understand, of course, the consequences of that. And they, eat farmers' crops and those farmers are not wealthy. Um, And so if an elephant destroys a pretty significant percentage of their harvest, then that's a lot of suffering on their part. And elephants can be dangerous. They don't have that reputation, but they're pretty big. And so if they feel threatened or frightened, that's a pretty large animal you're going up against. And so, you know, on both sides, there's a lot of suffering. And really the solution is uh, it's far more complicated than keeping, you know, bunny rabbits or squirrels out of your garden, but it's the same basic conflict of are there non-lethal repellents or fences or techniques we can use to keep the elephants out that aren't going to put people in danger and aren't going to result in the death of these animals, which are pretty critical to the local ecosystem. And so that is actually not too complicated of a scientific question in terms of testing repellents, testing fences, you know, getting long-term solutions and making everyone happy, of course, is incredibly complex. But what I, what we scientifically needed to study was not 
beyond the means of a, of a new scientist. <laughs> so it was a combination of um, methodological accessibility and the outcome being motivating. Right, and I think uh, what you said about problem solving is very important because uh, what you do is you're acknowledging both sides of the situation. Um, like I know personally when I'm in the animal activist community or um, just looking at human wildlife conflict, there there's start, there, people you know tend to maybe side with one group. And mm -hmm. uh, you've said that in order to advance conservation, we need to come from a place of understanding where the people's anger comes from. It's not you know heroes and villains, people who are mm -hmm. for nature and against nature. It is just where um, the their livelihoods depend. So I think you trying to mitigate a solution which works both ways is uh, really effective and um, honestly what's important. And um, so you had mentioned um, you had tested out certain certain mitigation methods. So um, can you firstly just tell us about your research area where you did it and just um, what was the situation there in the Gorongosa yeah. National Park? Yeah, so I I was at Gorongosa National Park and the we focused a lot of our work along kind of a natural boundary that I, I might pronounce it wrong, but um, the Pungwe River, if I remember correctly. And the Pungwe is kind of, on one side of it, you've got the park, and of course it's a water source, so a lot of animals tend to congregate there. And on the other side of that river, you had um, a lot of uh, farmers and sort of further out from that river were where local villages started. Um, and so, you know, you can kind of see setting the stage how that would be perhaps an area of conflict because you've got both animals and people sort of converging on this really useful water source. Um, in terms of types of uh, mitigation methods. So um, part of the research, of course, is looking at what has been done and, uh, you know, <laughs> testing it, at least in, in your sort of ecosystem brings its own sort of unique findings. But the base idea was not actually something we in, invented by any means. Um, it's, a, it's a crime, I'm remembering the name of the woman who pioneered it. Uh, I think if a quick search on the internet would bring her name up, but um, it's escaping me at the moment. But in any case, a brilliant researcher who came long before us actually created one of our mitigation methods, which is what they call a uh, chili oil fence, which is, is kind of, <laughs> it sounds bizarre, but um, you'll have to remember that the basis of all of these repellents are that elephants have, I think, one of the best uh, sort of most sensitive noses or olfactory sensors in the world and they tend to explore things with their trunks. So this researcher who came before us uh, essentially wanted um, to use a repellent that would be effective but that would also be cheap and uh, based mostly on waste materials so that again when you're thinking about what methods are actually going to work for local communities she said you know it, it needs to be something that's easy to construct it needs to be something that is not expensive. And so this fence is, it is literally, uh, it is chili, really, really hot chili peppers that are sort of ground down into a powder and mixed into an oil. And then the fences, ropes and uh, sort of connectors, like so it can be cloth or any sort of connecting material between those ropes is dipped in this really noxious mix of uh, blazing hot pepper <laughs> and essentially suspended uh, 
you know, around whatever it is you're trying to protect or as a, you know, boundary um, into the area you're trying to protect. And the idea is that elephants, when they interact with it, their sense of smell is so sensitive, their noses are so sensitive that much like a human would, but perhaps, you know, worse for an elephant, um, when they interact with it, it's it's just very unpleasant. And I can attest to that when I was making the fence, even then, as just a person, it's very unpleasant. You know, your nose runs, your eyes run, you, you know, it's kind of a snotty, messy affair. It's not pleasant. So <laughs> the idea was that, you know, structural integrity, an elephant being as large as it is, is isn't really going to get you there. To build a fence tall or strong enough to keep a creature that pushes trees over out is not really <laughs> an option, but a simple chemical repellent might work. And so that was the main, uh, that was one of them. The second one, not to drag on for too long, was beehive fencing. Also sounds exactly like what it is. Um, apparently, elephants, um, and you, you can find this on the internet as well, have a inherent fear of bees, uh, again, much like some humans do. And so I suppose that most elephants, uh, it's either instinctually or learned, I'm not sure, but uh, tend to forage by knocking over trees or by digging around in foliage. And I think the idea is that at some point in their lives, most of them will have disturbed a hornet's nest. And the uh, resulting attack is actually unpleasant enough to them that they develop a really noticeable behavioral avoidance of beehives. And so this other technique was essentially to string um, artificial hives, much like a beekeeper would use, up on rope in between posts. And an elephant, even if it was strong enough to knock over the fence, which it obviously is, in so doing, it disturbs these hives full of bees that then, much like they would to a human being who knocked their hive over, tend to swarm and attack. And uh, that apparently also has, uh, you know, hypothetically, these are the things we were testing, of course, but uh, literature claimed had a strong enough repelling effect to keep elephants out of whatever area you wanted them to stay out of. And so that uh, long-winded description is, that's basically the research. It was, we were going to go to this community on this boundary along the Pungwe River and put up um, beehive fences and chili oil fences. And of course we would have a control where there was nothing, um, no fence. Uh, I'm simplifying, but this was the base idea. These, these two types of mitigation methods uh, and nothing along known crossing points um, near this river into the community, put up some camera traps, um, have uh, locals who we worked with to observe and essentially collect quantitative data on how often these elephants visited, whether they breached the fence or whether they were turned back by it. And to sort of compare that to historical data on how often these raids were occurring and sort of narrow down for the park, what technique they should probably use going forward if they, you know, as part of a larger comprehensive strategy to solve this issue, uh, which one of these repellents seemed to show the most promise. Uh, and ultimately, uh, surprisingly, I, I had been rooting for the chili grease fence. We're um, thinking that that would be the most effective one just for its simplicity. Mm -hmm. But in reality, the beehive fence ended up outperforming the chili uh, oil fence. And although new researchers have taken up this project and some of the old team, I think, is still working on it. And you know, I, I haven't worked on it um, since this initial 
project, but I do believe that the park went forward with distributing the beehive fences and has been using that as part of its strategy. Mm, yeah, and um, I had read that the park also keeps a local beekeeping program, so they're able to mm -hmm. uh, maintain these hives um, and keep it feasible. And regarding that, um, would you be able to um, elaborate on the collaboration you had with the local community? Uh, were mm -hmm. they you know, receptive to it? How did they contribute and incorporate it? Yeah, yeah. So that's that's a big question. Um, I'll try to make sure I touch on all of the ways that that uh, took place. I think, um, so first and foremost, a lot of it was that while we were doing the work, we, um, well, even before the work took place, I, the head researcher who had begun sort of the initial efforts to sort of lay the groundwork to do this research, spent a lot of time living in the park and meeting with people, talking to people. And a lot of this piggybacks off of the work that the park had already done, which is a whole huge topic about how Gorongosa ideologically decided to approach um, people who had already been living in the area. Uh, because, you know, as, as people may or may not know, you know, sometimes with protected areas in, in Africa, there has been a very fraught history um, that I, perhaps won't get into, but a, a fraught history about how people who already lived on the land were treated, um, unjustly evicted, just a, a number of sort of lingering resentments towards the idea of con conservation in certain spaces because of how locals were treated. And so the park was very conscious about ways that they could attempt to break that cycle of uh, sort of disregarding locals and creating a sort of lasting enmity that leads to both sides fighting for a long, long time um, about what's fair and what's just. And so the park had done a lot to reach out to people to sort of, uh, it's, an, it's a fascinating topic. I would encourage people to look up uh, Gorongosa National Park's efforts with the communities. I fear if I try to talk about it, I'll take up far too much time. Um, but in terms of uh, making sure that they can continue to pursue their livelihoods um, while still attempting to protect, uh, fulfill the goals parks of protecting the environment and wildlife. Um, so we were benefiting from working in a space where the, one of the park's main goals was not just conservation, but to collaborate with people. Um, and so I think a lot of the initial work was just talking to people, figuring out, um, you know, where these problems were really taking place, you know, what was happening to people when they were interacting with the elephants, um, you know, and are they even interested in receiving help with these issues? And I think that sort of conversation continued throughout the course of the research. While I was there, we had to meet frequently, um, either every week or every other week with each individual not, and I'm not sure it was each village, but of the villages that we were going to be piloting this uh, in to sort of talk to them about what the goals were with this research um, in terms of trying to keep the elephants out, trying to help them and seeing what we could learn from them in terms of elephant behavior, um, where are the elephants coming in, what time of day, what are they you know, eating most, can you perhaps show us some of the fields that have been harmed? 
and sort of listening to their um, concerns about, you know, whether they believe the park really cared about this issue or, you know, whether um, they had confidence that this sort of work would succeed. And ultimately we were building near other people's, what other people would consider their property. And so sort of the base concept of even getting permission to be in somebody else's living space was a huge part of it. And it, for me, I think when you talked earlier about um, people sort of being on one side of an issue, I, I, I don't think I came in um, on one side, but I certainly do think I came in kind of biased towards the idea of uh, protecting the elephants and people who would, you know, kill an elephant over something like this being, you know, bad or they'd be, I'd be against them, you know, I guess as a base bias. But I think one of the most valuable experiences uh, that the park provides and that the research provided was that you, when you're forced to actually sit down and talk to other people who are in an entirely different situation from you, um, it, it really does force you to confront how you would feel if you were in their position. And of course, I thought I understood, you know, the inherent tension between trying to protect your livelihood and keeping out protected species, but truly, uh, I do think it was eye-opening to to talk to them. And I, I do remember one other tension of the research was, you know, it's it's your research or it's the lab's research, but it's these people's lives. And so mm-hmm. there was this concern that if you try this sort of cockamamie scheme, <laughs> this this repellent, and you waste all this, well, not waste, but perhaps in you know the eyes of the community, it might be waste, waste all this time sort of saying, you know, we have solutions or, you know, getting people's hopes up and then you don't really know how it works. Say the results come in and it didn't work at all. You know, how, what, what kind of impact does that have on long-term problem solving with the community and their trust in you and their trust in your competence. And so, you know, sometimes the idea of research and the idea of solving problems for people are not even, uh, very easy to align because research is very, can be very trial and error and people, you know, and again, if I was in their shoes, people can be very uh, dissatisfied by the idea of you saying to them after all that time, oh, well, it just didn't work. We'll keep trying, you know, that it rings very differently um, depending on where you stand. And so I think um, just the communicating with people both before the research, during and after, and, um, oh, sorry, I'm, perhaps rambling on, but just one more important point about the collaboration with the community in terms of um, both identifying good places to try the repellent uh, and monitoring the fences once they were up, all of that, um, the head researcher on the project uh, made it a point to make sure she was actually hiring local people to help with the observation and to help with getting to and from the villages and just generally understanding the area. I think, um, again, I, at the time was just a young researcher, but even then I, I had heard that there was increasing interest in making sure that you are sort of providing benefits for the communities that you work in and involving them holistically. And so involving them in the data collection, involving them in serving their own um, community members uh, was definitely a big part of it. It wasn't um, just us asking questions or us monitoring our own fences. It was 
um, the head researcher had made um, friends with some of the people and had hired some of the people who lived there um, to uh, help, you know, sort of participate in the research itself. And um, while, of course, a community encompasses lots of different opinions, um, there were some people who were more inclined to sort of believe in the project. And so, you know, those people were good allies to have. And when it comes to convincing people that you mean well, I think there's perhaps no better way to do it than to uh, sort of have friends talk to friends or community members talk to community members. And so um, I think having actual members of the community on the research team really, really helped a lot. And I sort of perceived that even as a young researcher who didn't, um, wasn't in control of that whole relationship laying process. Yeah, I think, I mean, everything you said is very um, insightful. I think the tension between the local communities and the research is very interesting. It certainly seems um, very, you know, complex. It's not, it's not as simple as just putting, you know, two people in a room together and just talking it out because, I mean, like you said, we all have our own um, biases and you don't understand the problem until you actually confront it, like you said, and it requires, um, I guess that sustained communication and just um, building confidence for them. Um, yeah. So I think that's a very important um, aspect that you've mentioned about conservation. And yeah, you mentioned asking people for specific information about the elephants and um, just the time of the time um, and you know season seasons of raid, the sex of the mm -hmm. elephant. And yeah. uh, I think you had mentioned that. It, it, that's helpful in uh, predicting the patterns of crop rating. So, and mm -hmm. I believe you've also done some research with that. Um, yeah. Right. So, um, yeah. So, just, I mean, thank you so much for telling us about uh, your research. We'll certainly uh, link the article and um, just um, whatever you mentioned in the description. So, people should definitely go check that out. And um, so you've done, you know, in-field work in the smaller communities, but you've also, you know, extended and uh, recently gotten into higher policymaking. So um, as a part of the Stanford Environmental Law Clinic, you have, uh, you had a recent win in, a Calif in the Californian Court of Appeal. Uh, can you tell us more about the case um, about, you know, the rodent poisoning, the safety issues, and just what the court case was? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the most recent case, again, like you said, I was, this is in connection with the Stanford Environmental Law Clinic. Um, and they had a case that essentially dealt with a uh, rodenticide that um, was, I'm trying to avoid using unnecessary jargon, um, I guess the easiest way to say it is that there was a rat poison that was very widely used and it was, according to a lot of ecologists and, and scientists, contributing to uh, population level events in local predator populations. So more specifically, I think we've all heard of the disease mange, it kind of, it's a skin disease. It's normally non-lethal. Um, I mean, it's a problem, but it, it's normally non-lethal. And, you know, scientists and the public in Southern California started noticing that bobcats, mountain lions um, were essentially dying in large numbers from mange, didn't understand why that was happening. 
Um, people had also noticed uh, birds of prey, so things like hawks or you know eagles, that sort of class of birds, sort of dropping dead, appearing poisoned, sickened. Mm. It's pretty gruesome, kind of hemorrhaging from the nose and eyes. Just unusual effects in local populate predator populations. A lot of researcher, a lot of research has been done into this issue. Uh, new research was done specifically in response to this mange outbreak and to what was causing it. And so uh, the, the studies themselves are very cool, but the long and short of them is that they found that the sort of blood and liver of a lot of these animals was heavily, contamin heavily contaminated by this um, rodenticide called difacinone. Mm -hmm. And um, again, I think this issue, it's a specific example of the issue here, but for your viewers, they, you know, you, we may have also heard about the concept of um, neonicotinoid insecticides causing issues with bee colonies. And it's a very common, I think, question in the environmental science space now, how certain pesticides or rodenticides may um, get into the bodies of non-target wildlife and cause unintended environmental consequences and how to deal with that. And so this um, organization, Raptors Are the Solution, I think is their, their name, they're an environmental organization, um, sort of collected this science that had been coming out on what Difasinone was perhaps doing to these local populations, submitted it to the government agency responsible for making decisions about how we use these pesticides. Um, which is a simplification, but, you know, pretty accurate. They, they, they make decisions about, you know, who's allowed to use them and where, how often, you know, should we be using it at all? Is it too dangerous? That sort of thing. Submitted that science to them. And in California and in the U.S. more broadly, there are, uh, in California, it's called the California Environmental Quality Act, but essentially there is a law that requires government agencies, um, private actors as well, but you know, government agencies to essentially assess the environmental consequences of their actions. Um, and in this context, that would be to assess the environmental consequences of difacinone's use. And as I said earlier, there was this body of science sort of ringing alarm bells saying, hey, you know, we are linking the sort of widespread use of this pesticide to the collapse of predator populations, which are already an incredibly stressed part of the food web. And, you know, not, we're focusing on mammals at this point, but um, there was a pretty concerning body of necropsies, just dead, dying, or sick animals who, when autopsy, were heavily contaminated by difasnone and other rodenticides. And so we're starting to think as ecologists that this is having a really serious effect. So agency who is required under law to consider the environmental consequences of your actions, you know, take a look at this. And so they did, but um, that law requires more than just taking a look at something. It, it gives what we call substantive standards for the quality of the assessment. I, I guess you can think of it as like a book report. You know, you can be assigned, you can be assigned to sort of read and talk about something and you can do it and say, uh, hey, this book was good, then that's it. Or you can, you know, give a report that says really engages with the themes and the issues and really deep dives. And so I think that's a good analogy to how you may take issue with a CEQA compliant response is that response is required to do a number of things substantively. Um, one of which that we took issue with in this case was 
uh, it needs to be informative about what the science said. Um, and it also needs to analyze what are called cumulative impacts, which is just a fancy way of saying, um, I guess climate change is a good example. You know, you might have a little power plant that's just giving off a little bit of greenhouse gas emissions. And if you just look at that little power plant, you might be able to say, hey, we should approve it because at the end of the day, what percentage really is this contributing? It's a tiny percentage, you know, who cares? And that is perhaps ignoring the fact that that tiny power plant is cumulatively contributing to an issue that's already severe. And you will be unable to essentially address large severe issues if you ignore that lots of tiny little projects when taken together can cause really serious problems, which is, you know, climate change. Mm -hmm. And so with the pesticide thing, it's very similar. You know, you might be able to say just difasinone um, is having an effect but what is that effect when you know taken in concert with all the other poisons that are out there in terms of rodenticides and pesticides and things like that? And could it be that difasinone individually has one effect, but difasinone working in concert with a bunch of the other rodenticides that are out there is enough to cause this population level collapse we're seeing? It's just too much. Um, and so these are the sorts of questions that the agency is meant to grapple with under the California Environmental Quality Act. And um, we didn't feel that they did that, um, or, you know, the client didn't feel that they did that and the, the clinic was representing them. So that was our position. And um, essentially at the trial court level, the uh, trial court ruled in favor of the agency saying, you know, actually their assessment of the science was, was adequate under the California Environmental Quality Act. Um, and you know, they were entitled to refuse to reevaluate how difasinone perhaps should be used in California. Um, but uh, the client appealed that decision to the appellate level, the next level up, um, right on under the Supreme Court, but above the trial court. And we sort of re-argued that saying, you know, we don't believe that the agency took an adequate look at the science. And I, I'm, I'm simplifying again, but that was essentially the long and short of it. <laughs> under the California Environmental Quality Act, there were a lot of things that they didn't look at, a lot of parts of the science they disregarded, that they, you know, part of the allegations were that they outright misrepresented, were not honest about, um, and disregarded. And ultimately, the appeals court was convinced, after looking at the science itself, that indeed the agency seemed to ignore a lot of critical information about what this rodenticide was perhaps doing to the environment. And... Um, decided to reverse the trial court's decision and rule in our favor. And what that ultimately means is that the agency has to go back, sit with the science and take a better look at it. And again, what better means is it's kind of a list of things, but for one example, they do have to look at cumulative impacts and essentially in doing this exercise, it makes the agency more likely to reevaluate whether difasinone should perhaps be um, banned or whether its use should be changed. It's um, the first step towards getting real alteration to how this poison is applied. Um, and it, you know, it, it's one of those things where the client felt that it was very meaningful because a lot of their work is trying to get agencies and the public writ large to recognize 
some of the consequences of using certain insecticides and rodenticides. And so it was meaningful for them to get this result. And I think for me personally, as we talked about before, I, I started in the sciences and a lot of my desire to change over into the law came from this sort of belief that, you know, if I wrote a paper on some sort of issue, I publish it, it doesn't necessarily translate into uh, good work. And I think the time I spent in the law is sort of led me to believe that I was being too hard on the sciences at the time. But I, I think part of this, this case um, was rewarding for me personally because it was helping a sort of group of researchers, science, be given a sort of fair and even-handed analysis before a government agency um, instead of being, uh, according to the law, sort of inappropriately disregarded or given short shrift. Um, and so I, I, I think that would be my, <laughs> my, my full description of, of that case. No, yeah, I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, that that's it. <laughs> no, great. Um, I mean, yeah, congratulations on the win. It seemed I watched a bit of the live case. It was really interesting. And okay. <laughs> um, yeah, and um, yeah, definitely. I think what you're saying about the importance of science in policy and lawmaking um, is very important. And just uh, like you mentioned, there's so many interconnected factors in nature. So it's very important to look at uh, look at them as interdependent. Um, mm -hmm. Since, as you mentioned, there can be unintended consequences. Uh, so I had like read, I had read that uh, the bobcats and um, the bobcats and coyotes and bears who were getting harmed, they're the non-target wildlife because yeah. you know, the aim is to target the rodents, but it's the secondary effects are passing on to them. So I think mm -hmm. just um, that's, you know, because of those uh, secondary consequences, we can't foresee by just looking at uh the um, the poison in isolation uh, makes the rigorous you know scientific review even more important. And um, I wanted to ask throughout this process and just your experience in environmental law in general, uh, what are some of the specific challenges that you feel that you faced? Yeah, I think um, One of the challenges, at least in environmental law, is uh, kind of what I began to touch on earlier is, I think it's actually something that a lot of um, environmental law students that I've talked to have faced as well, is that if you are sort of looking for a way to problem solve, um, so I guess a lot of members of the younger generation are really galvanized about climate change and issues of sustainability and environmental health, you know, clean air, clean water, um, I feel like it's it's really at the forefront. Um, not that that's the first time this has happened, of course, but <laughs> it just seems to be a thing that's on a lot of people's minds right now. And you know that inspires you to perhaps get into a onto a career path that uh, is looking to problem solve in that space. You know, like I said, that took me from science and then into law and policy with this idea of sort of helping, you know, uh, law and policymakers look closely at the science, make sort of uh, at least well-educated or well-reasoned decisions based on, you know, what we do know. And, um, you know, climate change being perhaps one of the best examples of that. 
I do think it's challenging um, because at the end of the day, uh, you learn that every profession is limited in its ability to solve large problems. Um, so as a scientist, you know, you may think to yourself, uh, oh, well, let me back up. I'll describe it this way. It's a grass is always greener kind of thing. Mm-hmm. In science, you may think of yourself as someone who, uh, you know, I'll do the research, I'll provide information, I'll put it into science or nature or the Journal of Animal Ecology. And then I might go home and sort of wring my hands about who's reading it or will anyone take it seriously, you know, or if you're a climate scientist, like, but I can't force people to, you know, listen, of course, and that's not the goal. It's just to put out information. But if you're concerned about the outcomes, then I can, I think it creates a certain degree of anxiety about um, whether you were helping to problem solve. But when you get into law, you realize that um, you know, a lot of people who are working on, on policy are really dependent on that science. And litigation and starting fights, for lack of a more eloquent way of putting it, is, is also very limited in terms of solving things. I hear a lot of law students, myself in, included, who start to think, ah, oh, geez, I, maybe I should just be an activist. <laughs> because it's, you know, you have a one, you have a case that has a good outcome. And some cases have good outcomes for large groups of people or have, you know, large sort of implications. Um, For example, you know, Earth Justice, one of the groups I I really looked up to when I was changing over into the law, you know, they were part of the Massachusetts v. EPA case, which is famous for allowing the Clean Air Act to recognize greenhouse gas emissions as an air pollutant, which then empowered the federal government to start regulating greenhouse gas emissions. And so that feels huge, right? Like you could look at that and say, you know, that was really important that it touched a lot of people. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's a really glamorous example, but not all cases are going to be like that or to have that like uh, sort of wide range of impact. And so I I have heard myself included a lot of lawyers, they start to think, you know, litigation is such a costly, long, inefficient way of problem solving. You know, maybe I should just go be a policymaker. I should be an activist because activists actually know how to get people together to agree, which is what actually creates long lasting change. And so I think one of the the difficulties just in general is, you know, if you're getting into a profession because you want to help problem solve, I think inevitably everyone I've talked to in every field sort of thinks that they're, they could be doing more or should be in a different field to have a greater impact and it can be kind of uh, hmm, I'm not sure what the right adjective is to attach to that but certainly difficult a little bit self-defeating and anxiety producing and so I think um, the idea of coming to terms with uh, you know once you get to problems that are big enough and complex enough that one group or one career path or one method of attack isn't going to have the answer or be able to solve it, I think is perhaps one of the most difficult uh, revelations. And perhaps I'm wrong. I haven't stumbled across (laughs) the one career path that will allow you to solve climate change or (laughs) that sort of thing. But I I, just being in school and listening to other students who are very motivated um, in terms of change making, I think that's the biggest challenge. Yeah, I think you bring up a really important point that, you know, in the end, we have limited resources with where where we're at, and we can't help everyone. So I think it's, 
it's really about, um, as you've done, like choosing the most accessible, the best problems that you can make a difference in and finding that scope um, there, you know, you can look at the most tractable cause, the more, the most neglectable cause or, you know, certain um, the cause that you can, you know, quantify and um, you can make tangible impact in. So I feel like those certain parameters can help people, you know, narrow in on their focus and just, you know, do well in the area in which they're in. And just in relation to that, what would be your message for the younger people who are interested in conservation or advocacy and want to drive change? What would your advice be? Well, I think kind of going off of what you were just saying, um, there's a lot of issues and there's a lot of ways to attack them. I think my advice, um, and again, I'm just starting out too, so it, it always feels weird to give advice to, to, to younger people. I myself still consider myself someone who needs advice from others, but <laughs> what, I, what I would say is that it really does help a lot to do something that you are passionate about. I think, um, you know, just in the environmental space, which I have some experience with, you can go the science route, you can go the law and policy route, the advocacy route, um, the business route, you know, economics, things like that. And there's a ton of different ways to attack an issue, but I really do think it, it sounds sort of flowery, but um, I think it, it makes it a lot easier to dedicate yourself to a profession and succeed in it when it's coming from a genuine place of interest um, and excitement. And so I think not being um, embarrassed by or ashamed of whatever it is you're passionate about or whatever it is you're naturally drawn to and instead sort of harnessing that um, and leaning into it as your personal individual way to contribute, I think um, really does a lot. Uh, and I would say on that same vein, whatever that takes you to, um, whether that be entertainment or business or law or science or whatever else I'm leaving out, the, the thousands of different pathways um, by which you can attack a problem to um, sort of really be, uh, what's the right way of saying it? I guess comfortable with that decision because when you, at least for me personally, when you're you know pursuing the law or pursuing science, um, you're going to be surrounded by people who are interested or motivated by other things, which is 100% fine. But I think one of the most difficult sort of experiences in, in law school, or I'm sure in plenty of other academic career paths, is that um, you are often encouraged to second guess whether, you know, this career path is worth your time. You could be making more money elsewhere. Perhaps you could be working for working for someone or in a position that is more prestigious or is more easy for, you know, other people to understand. And, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that necessarily, but I, I do think that my advice to people, if, if they've decided that they're looking to, I don't know, make a change or pursue something that means something to them is to sure be, be willing to revisit that and grow. Cause of course you'll change as a person. And, you know, I change from science to law, but to not essentially allow um, sort of external sources or pressures to push you off of a path for the wrong reasons. Because I, I do think that um, for major professions, there's uh, sort of a, um, 
encouragement to say, take a certain path or work for certain groups of people or make a certain amount of money. And um, Mm, I think it's more important that you understand what motivates you and what you want to do with your life and do in the world and pursue that wholeheartedly um, and not feel sort of discouraged by uh, the idea that you could have a more prestigious position or make more money elsewhere or, or things. And if that, you know, if that's what motivates you, then that's totally fine. But if that's not what motivates you, then being at peace with that and allowing your passion to guide you. I think that, if anything, that would be what I've learned <laughs> moving from the science to the law, uh, to the environmental space more broadly. Yeah, definitely. Uh, that's very insightful. And uh, thank you so much. And I just wanted to end off by asking, um, just in the environmental law field, a lot of cases are quoting rights of nature as uh, you know, sort of their uh, premise and argument. Can you explain this concept, the rights of nature, in layman terms to our listeners and what it means for environmental advocacy in the future? Yeah, absolutely. I find I find the concept fascinating. So uh, I think the simplest way to describe it requires just a tiny, tiny bit of legal background, not much, but there's this concept of standing. So who has a right to sue, I think is the simplest way of saying it. You're not allowed to sue over anything, anywhere, ever. <laughs> so say something happens. I mean, I'm in California right now. Say something happens in uh, New York that I don't like, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, a lake is being polluted or, uh, you know, a new, a new power plant is going up that perhaps has negative environmental justice implications and it upsets me. Uh, and I think I have a pretty good case. There's barriers to who can bring that suit. You have to actually be personally affected by what's happening or it, it gets slightly more complicated, but perhaps you're a member of an organization that advocates for such issues um, or your, you know, your business is affected. Um, I'll keep it simple, but you have to be, you can't sue about issues that technically in the eyes of the law don't affect you. Mm-hmm. And so for a lot of issues, that's not too much of a barrier. Most people are only inclined to sue about things that affect them personally. But when it comes to environmental issues, it can create this huge barrier of, Say I pollute this lake or, you know, a good example is the Alaska, the wildlife refuge in Alaska. Uh, You know, say I want to log there. Um, You know, I think that most people who are in the environmental sciences could articulate why environmental destruction in one part of the country harms us all or why polluting air in one area harms us all. But the law is very concerned with how does this action really affect you? And if you can't articulate that, then you don't have standing to sue. Gross oversimplification, but that's that's kind of the, the base concept, right? And so rights of nature comes from, there are a lot of different motivations behind it. And um, all of which are very fascinating, some of which I'm sure are, are purely sort of moral and ideological and, and others of which you sort of get into this, this legal aspect. Um, And the legal aspect being, if a tree has rights or if a lake has rights, then the violation of those rights in the form of being cut down or polluted is actionable. That that tree essentially, it has the right to sue on its own behalf at that point, if it has rights. 
instead of needing to sort of draw this line between that lake is polluted, but how does that affect you? You know, what financial interest do you have in this lake? Do you live on this lake? Do you play on this lake? Um, that barrier, it sounds simple, but it can be a huge problem when it comes to bringing environmental lawsuits is sort of articulating how it affects you. Because uh, honestly, I mean, when I've been learning about standing in law school, it, the, the concept didn't doesn't really mesh well with modern ideas of environmental protection and value. I think people worry about a lake being polluted or worry about bees being lost, not because, you know, they necessarily plan to drink from that lake or, or they run an agricultural sort of business that relies on pollinators like bees, but because the concept of those things being lost is morally, ideologically, fundamentally, scientifically, plenty of different angles, but it's distressing and it's wrong and it's something you want to stop regardless of whether um, you ever plan to swim in that lake or drink from that lake. And there are plenty of people who do, of course, have more personal connections to environmental issues and you know, those are often the people that sue, but um, by essentially, in short, by giving individual items in nature rights, like a lake or a forest, it becomes, you essentially get to skip this step of creating uh, this sort of financial, personal connection to this body as a reason to be able to sue. And so it, it makes bringing protective lawsuits and advocating for things a lot easier. And so I know it's a it's an issue that's begun to gain traction. I've heard examples of it happening. I think people considered doing it um, for Lake Erie and that there have been examples of it. I'm sure you've heard Nikita in, in other countries as well. But um, I, of course, am kind of environmentally minded. So I like it from an ideological standpoint. I mean, companies have rights at this point. Companies are people under law. It, seems not actually absurd to me at all that we would start to confer rights onto a lake or a forest for the purpose of protecting that entity the same way we conferred rights onto sort of the artifice that is a corporation separate and apart from its sort of members. Uh, but even if you set aside uh, sort of the ideology or the morality behind it, which of course minds can differ on, just practically speaking, it allows um, for sort of practice of environmental law that um, is, is easier and perhaps more responsive to more modern ideas of why people would be suing on behalf of uh, sort of an instance of environmental destruction. So that was perhaps long, more long-winded than you wanted, but <laughs> it has both, both legal and moral implications that are, are um, very fascinating, I think. Yeah, I think um, I remember seeing some articles about how India has granted, has in the past granted rivers and nat uh, natural bodies rights. So I don't know, it sometimes happens randomly in India. So I found that um, interesting. And um, I, I think they're also just about uh, giving, you know, non just object, not objects, but natural bodies or entities, which are not humans rights. I think it also brings up the like, ethical debate of whether animals deserve rights from a legal right. perspective. And, um, you know, there's the court case going on in New York for Happy the Elephant, where they're saying, essentially, she deserves the rights of a person. So I think that intersection is also um, uh, very cool. So I think, um, yeah, I'll definitely go check out the rights of nature because I found that interesting. Um, yeah, so, 
yeah, I mean, thank you so much. This was such an insightful conversation. You do such amazing work and it's great to hear a perspective from, you know, someone who's, uh, you know, young uh, and, you know, just working <laughs> in the field and you've done just a variety of projects from theoretical work to applications. So I think, um, yeah, it was just really nice talking to you. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm, uh, I still feel like I'm starting out in my career, so I'm surprised and, and, and honored that someone would even be interested in hearing about it. So thank you so much for reaching out. Cool. And we'll have um, the links of your you know, research in the description because we want our listeners to check it out. And yeah, thank you so much for your time. I hope you have a nice day. Yeah, thank you so much. And I, I would part by saying, yeah, I, I really encourage people to sort of look into these things, the, the rights of nature, the cases, the research, uh, because I'm sure my short descriptions didn't do them justice, <laughs> but they're all fascinating topics. Mm-hmm.